Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. Uh, it's great to be together or, or be together uh, across the veil uh, and be here at Jubilee. So uh, at the risk of sounding like I was paid you know, to say what I'm about to say, um, if it's your first time at a Jubilee conference, I, I do want to say that make sure you go to the physical one next year as well. Uh, because um, I really do believe, and I've, I've said this before, ever since the first time that I that I participated in one, that Jubilee is one of the best college conferences that there is. Period. Uh, I, I I think it's just well done, well run, and 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 and, and I think uh, impactful in in great ways. So uh, it, it really is a great conference. Now, it's also a conference where uh, if you go to the website, you often hear a phrase like every square inch. You hear about that uh, a lot. Well, behind me, I'm just going to move out of the way so you can see these words. You see something in Dutch. This is in Dutch, sovereignteit in eigen kring, which means sovereignty in its sphere. Uh, and so that is uh, sovereignty in its sphere. Or you hear the term sphere sovereignty sometimes in CCO circles. And so Sovereignteit Eichenkring is the name of an address that Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch uh, theologian, theologian, journalist, politician, educator, and several other things, uh, that he gave at when they were inaugurating what's the Free University of Amsterdam. And when he gave this uh, inaugural address, when he's bringing it home at the end, he culminates that uh, address by saying there's not one square inch over the entire creation over which Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, does not say mine. So when you see every square inch when you're talking about Jubilee, it came from the address that uh, is the title, the, the title of which is my uh, my screen right now. But. Now I'm going to make that go away so you see me more in my sort of uh, professorial type of uh, way. So um, one second, I'm going to make it go away. All right. Now, now I just like your, your, your garden variety professor with a bunch of books behind it. But... Um, it's uh, th- th- it's my it's my journey to being a professor that I want to talk about and talk about education as vocation in this workshop. Um, my aspiration, as I look at the time, is to by one forty five to be done with talking about my story and some thoughts about how we got to think about our life in terms of uh, education and uh, in terms of our vocation per se. So. Uh, you know, Sam introduced me. Uh, he said I'm at Wheaton College. Wheaton College, by the way, which you can learn about the grad school in the virtual exhibit hall. So go check that out. Um, so I'm here at Wheaton College. I teach theology for a living. Um, when I was a college student, this is not what I was thinking about, at least not at the beginning, because I wanted to be a veterinarian is what I wanted to be. So uh, why why did he, I want to be a veterinarian? Well, because from a very early age, I loved animals. And, I mean, any kind of animal. So, in fact, 
you know, uh, it's kind of embarrassing to say this, but so uh, I wanted to know about every animal. And when we had show and tell uh, at, in, in my first grade class, what I would do was um, I would take this little book that I had that had some dictionary about it. And I would get up and I would have this little picture. Nobody could see this picture. It had this little picture. And uh, I would tell everybody about the, the, you know, the most recent animal that was intriguing to me, you know, after a while, I think after two or three times, they were like, if you, if you don't have something other than an animal, that's, that, that's going to have to be it. Thank you, Vincent. But I was very, very fascinated with the animal kingdom. There was a, t- there was a TV show that came on Saturday night. It's called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. That was probably my favorite TV show. Uh, so I loved that show. And I was also very fascinated um, with medical questions by the time I was in sort of late elementary school, early uh, junior high is uh, junior high was seventh grade to ninth grade where in where you know, where I grew up. Um, and uh, in eighth grade, I, and I use this term intentionally, decided that I wanted to be a veterinarian because I really liked the intersection between those things. So I set out to find out about what, what do you do if you're a veterinarian? I mean, I knew it had something to do with like fixing animals, but uh, fixing animals. Why? What kind of diseases do, do various kinds of animals have? What kind of school do you go to, etc.? So my my aspiration was to find out what to do. So I bought this very big book called, from the library. I, I, I borrowed this book called A Veterinary Guide for Animal Owners. Learned about all kinds of different animal diseases. Like I didn't know what hip dysplasia was, for example. But, but, you know, I'm reading about this. I didn't know what it meant for a cow to be down and all this stuff. So I read about that. Uh, and it was, it was very informative. Uh, and, it, and it was very intriguing to me. And I was like, yeah, I think this is what I want to do. Then, of course, I had to think about, well, how do you get there? How, are you, how, how do you get from wanting to be a veterinarian to actually being, you know, a different kind of Dr. Baycoat, you know, with, with DVM behind my name rather than Ph.D.? How does, how does one do that? So uh, having grown up in Maryland, I had to learn, figure out, well, where do you go to school? If you were in Maryland back then in the 80s, you uh, either went to, because um, there was this thing called contract state schools, which meant that if your school, if your state did not have a veterinary school or didn't have uh, much of a veterinary school, let's put it that way, there were other states that had slots reserved for people from your state. And I learned that if you wanted to do small animal medicine, probably one of the best places in the country to do that was Cornell University. And if you wanted to do large animal medicine, then Texas A&M, for example, was a great place to do that. Cornell was among the uh, contract state states for Maryland. So uh, I got this idea that then I um, wanted to go to veterinary school either at Cornell or at Texas A&M. Um, and maybe Penn as well, because Penn was also another contract state. Ohio State was a contract state. Georgia was a contract state. So I was learning about all of that. And, and so uh, then when it came to where I was going to go to college, the important thing was that uh, I could be on a pre-veterinary track. Now, as it happens, uh, I wound up going to college at the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. And since we're doing show and tell... At the Citadel, this was my hat. So this hat doesn't fit 
anymore, right? But, you know, these are like real authentic peacock feathers. So I'm not going to throw this out, right? And I can't just like leave it around the house. So this is basically scenery in my office. Scenery that people think is some kind of bird that I've got taxidermy when they when they look at if they see it up on a shelf. But the Citadel Military College, South Carolina, is where I went. Now, if you're in South Carolina, generally you go to Clemson if you want to be a veterinarian. But you can be a veterinarian and be a Citadel graduate. So there I went to this military college with the plan of being a biology major and then with uh, at some point in the beginning of my senior year, thinking about applying to the relevant veterinary schools, places such as Cornell. While in college, I was involved with uh, a campus ministry analogous to the CCO, but not as uh, um, not as holistic in worldview as CCO. So, I, or at least not consistently holistic in worldview. I won't name them. I mean. I love that that ministry and it changed my life, but I'll I'll leave them nameless for now. Uh, and and th- and so that was very influ- influential for my discipleship. It was very life changing for me. Um, and part of what they had were these things during the summer that, that where you could go and be involved in ministry uh, in some other part of the country. So I want, so the summer of my sophomore year, I went to Memphis, Tennessee, for about five or six weeks. And was part of what they called they called them summer training programs, and so um, that was a great and very uh, transformative experience in my life. Uh, and uh, at that, at that, uh, during that summer training program, I'd say that's why I grasped. And I'd say probably in a very deep and unique way what it meant to to live under the lordship of Christ. And so I got back to school in the fall, still planning to be a veterinarian. And there were people who were meeting, uh, you know, prayer groups meeting in, in my room, other people's rooms. And so this interesting thing happened one day. I was, uh, you know, leading this prayer group in my room. And before, and we were just sharing and talking beforehand. And these guys, these, these freshman guys were looking at me as if I was, like, really helpful. I mean, I think I was. But, I mean, but they're, like, really looking at me like, we know that you can really help us, Vince. Uh, so... Um, it was, it was, I I can remember like it was yesterday and this thought popped in my head. The thought was maybe you should be a preacher is what the thought was that popped in my head. Now, now I was not thinking about this at all. Now it had been said in the interest of full disclosure, it had been said when I was young, like 11 or 12, that maybe he was going to be a preacher one day to which I said, well, good luck. I'm going to be a veterinarian. What do you think about that? And so uh, I, uh, you know, had this thought pop in my head. And um, and then I was in a conundrum because um, I did want to help people in their spiritual lives. But I was also still fascinated with the idea of veterinary medicine. And so I was of two minds when I was a junior and a senior, is he going to go to seminary or is he going to go to veterinary school? What's he going to do? And so um, I graduated from the Citadel in 1987. I did not change my major. My degree is in biology. Um, And then 
uh, I uh, took a few years off uh, to discern which way to go. And in, t- in doing this, um, it actually became pretty clear that, uh, I'd say within six months, that it was more the ministry route than the veterinary medicine route that, that I should take. Now, here's the thing, because this also is, there's, a, there's, another, there's another crisis that, that's coming up I'm going to tell you about. The only categories I had, if you had some idea about full-time ministry, was you're either going to be a missionary, generally a foreign missionary, or you're going to be on the staff of some church, hopefully with the aspiration to one day be the senior pastor. Now, I knew that for certain, uh, because public speaking was something I always liked. I I knew I wanted to preach. Um, I didn't know at the time that there were any, any other options. I just knew that I needed to think about going to seminary somewhere, talk to people about that, got good recommendations, while going to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, about 40 minutes from where I'm at right now. Um, while I was there, just before I got there, I, ha- I started feeling some discomfort with the role of being a pastor. I know what, there were other things beside that that I wanted to do, even though preaching was definitely part of what I wanted to do. Um, and again, again, I only had two categories. Now, you might think, hey, but you're going to seminary. There are people who teach there. What about those people? Um, There was this weird thing that happened. And the weird thing was, well, you know, it's like, go get the information from those people. But maybe you shouldn't be those people. Because are those people really doing the practical things? Maybe they're a little bit too heady. Maybe they're a little bit too caught up in their minds and they're not doing on the ground, you know, frontline ministry type stuff. So, so, so the idea of being those people was uh, not at all something that would have ever occurred to me. And so here's the irony. Uh, so uh, we were in a quarter system. Then I got all A's my first quarter of seminary and um a guy who'd been on staff with the organization I'd been part of in college says to me, Vince, a guy like you ought to get a PhD. And when he said that, it was like someone, somebody turned on a light and everything started to make sense. There was only one problem, hence the crisis. In the back of my mind was, no, but you've got to do like this, all this, this, this specific kind of practical ministry stuff. Don't you think that, you know, if, if you were to get a PhD, I mean, and maybe do something as a professor, you have to be essentially like a full-time pastor and a full-time uh, professor. Because, you know, the, the point was, was that it, it, the legitimacy of being a professor was in question. Because again, was it practical enough? Was it the right kind of thing? Was it the thing most pleasing to God? And so what wound up happening was, um, with the help of a number of people, I discovered, one, being a pastor is a full-time job. So uh, if you want to try to do both of those, that's really, really hard. And, and we, But we need both. And after much conversation, uh, it became clear to me, and, and, and through much help and prayer, that the path I was to take was to become a professor professor who certainly preaches and does other kinds of public speaking, et cetera, but to be a professor. Another way to put it is I discovered that, that to my surprise, I was one of them. In other words, one of them, the people that I was 
you know, learning from when I was at, at Trinity. And, and, you know, I was always going hanging out in their offices and stuff. So a friend of mine, Joe, to go to events, everybody thinks you're practically faculty anyway, because you're always hanging out with them. I was just going to go talk to people. That's all I was doing, just trying to find out more. I had questions. They're there. Why not ask them questions? I mean, that's all I was doing. So I wound up then going to get my doctoral degree at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Very beautiful place. Uh, and in uh, December of was well December 1999, my wife and I left there, and I had one chapter of my dissertation finished. And I started here at Wheaton College in, in January of 2000. We started on calendar years because my oldest daughter was born in August of 99. I, I'd rather not have begun my career with a disaster. So they let me start in the middle of the year, in the middle of the year. And so here I am, beginning of year 22 at Wheaton College. And so it's really important to understand that it, getting past the crisis and understand that it was okay to be a professor required a significant shift. The shift that it required was understanding that there's lots of things that, that go under this umbrella of what one might call full-time Christian service. And that uh, that, that is not just whether you're in the pulpit or something related to that, or whether you're working for a mission organization and you're in another country. And I mean, basically what, what it came down to is I had too small a vision of what it means for gifted people to be functioning in the body of Christ. And part of it was, I just hadn't been exposed to people who, who were like I am now. Uh, and part of it was also understanding that um, there's lots of ways that you make your life count. There's not just like one or two ways. So for me, that was really um, a, a very revolutionary thing. Now, I have to say, and this is important, especially if any of you are thinking about grad school, that while I was in grad school, even then there was a crisis. I promise that everything about this isn't how did you get over like, like 20 crises, but there was a crisis. And that crisis was, um, you know, it was around the time of my comprehensive exam. So you usually take you two years of courses, then you take a comprehensive exam, and then uh, you do your dissertation. Well, after finally passing the German test the third time. Then uh, I, because you have to take two, it passed two languages. The first one, French, that was okay. German, even the German speakers thought that the German translation exam was hard. <laughs> what hope was there for the rest of us? But somehow I got through it. Uh, and then it was time for my comps. And at certain points, it just felt like I was just grinding my wheels, just kind of like spinning. And what can happen when you're investing all your time in that is that, you know, you literally can lose, you know, the forest for the trees. And what was, and so all the attention to that was in a way gaining so much of my attention that I didn't really think about why I was even doing it. I was just there, you know, doing this academic thing, almost like, okay, is your career to be this academic person? And what, what was very helpful to me was I, I heard a sermon where somebody was talking about using the metaphor. Uh, he was talk, we were talking about the episode when the 12 spies look, look to the promised land. And, of course, 10 of them say, don't do it. Right. And Joshua and Caleb say, do it. The Lord says he's going to put it in, deliver it into our hands. Uh, and his whole point was, was like having the right vision. 
and see, and, and, and it occurred to me, it's like, well, why are you doing what you're doing? I mean, why, was I in this academic context wanting to be a professor because my primary goal was just academic careerism? Was this the thing that I was doing? And it occurred to me, I said, no, this is not why you are, are, are you're getting a PhD. You're here because this is what you, be, you believe, that God has called you into your life to live out your vocation in this domain. Public speaking is part of that domain. Doing this research and writing thing is part of this domain. And eventually teaching is part of this domain. And by the way, administration too. If you're going to be a professor, just be aware. So, uh, so, so that was very, very helpful to me to, to just get that recalibration, you know, to, that, that being set back on the right path. Or if you will, you know, wearing glasses, there's like having your glasses fogged up and then finally, you know, they're, they're not fogged up and you have a clear vision of what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. And so for me, that was very helpful. So why, why was I getting this PhD? Not because of academic careerism, but because this was the domain of full-time Christian service to which God had called me. So that, that was huge. That was huge for me. Uh, because it's very easy, I think, in anything that we go into, to become, yes, Sam, yes, it was my square inch. Yes, precisely. So uh, it can be very easy to become so caught up in the particulars of whatever that world is that you think your reason for being there is just those particulars and just doing the the career thing. When really... I think we the, the, the prior thing needs to be, how am I living where I am, doing what I'm doing in my trajectory? At, how am I doing this as someone aware of God's call on the entirety of my life? And as God has called me in the entirety of my life, how is this life in service to him, using what he's given me where I am, to serve him as best I can. You know, back when I wanted to be a veterinarian, I did not think about whether this was what God wanted me to do. When when it came down to getting to where I am now, it was understanding that my life belonged to God. And now my question is to seek God for what trajectory to take with my life. When I was thinking about being a veterinarian, it was, I've decided to be a veterinarian. And now, Lord, won't you just sponsor my plans, please? Thank you very much. I, I mean, that, that's really what, what it was. Now, I'm not saying that I might not have come around to recognizing that, that, that it would have come under the larger calling of my life as somebody whose life belongs to God. And that vocation is about the entirety of God's call on my life. Uh, but Certainly, the mindset I had coming into college was, okay, you got to think about what you're going to do with this job and this career. And then, and then, you know, uh, Lord, help, help make this happen. Rather than, God, I am yours. How do you want to make something of my life? And where are you taking me? Where are we going? Right? Which doesn't mean that did you check your brain at the door, but that the discernment includes this discourse with God about where are you taking me? Where do you want me 
to go. You know, even being here at Wheaton, if you had told me at Wheaton that I was going to be the director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics, I would have said, and you're a liar, is what you are, is what I would have said. Because I wasn't thinking about this. Now, as it happens, I'm a person, if you look, if you happen to look at some of the stuff that I've written, I'm all about talking about a living faith, a faith connected to public life, you know, the intimate connection between what we believe and how we live, between our theology and our ethics. That's that, that's basically my thing, right? Uh, and uh, so it makes sense, actually, that I'm director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics. But somebody had to nudge me, a former department chair said, Vince, this position is going to be open. I think you should be that person. Now, I, there was nobody else in the room, so he had to be talking to me. So so here we are, and I've been doing that for 14 years, in addition to being a professor here at Wheaton, and now I'm very thankful for that nudge. So sometimes what my point about that is sometimes we need others to help us to see what is else is there in our trajectory. And as a result of, 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 of this, this dimension of what I'm doing, it's helped me to learn a lot more about thinking about the way institutions work, about thinking about leadership, thinking about vision. Those types of things have been very, very helpful uh, for me as I've, as I've thought about sort of my life trajectory. So here, here's one other interesting thing that's kind of funny uh, about being a professor uh, as, as a person who had wanted to be a veterinarian. All of my dad's sisters, and my dad came from a family of I think there were 12 of them. All of my dad's sisters were teachers. And one day, this is maybe six or seven years ago, I was pulling into the drive to the parking lot out, outside the building where I'm at right now. Uh, and it occurred to me, it's like, you know, you're in the family business, right? And I was like, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, they were all somewhere between K, K through 12. Uh, but I'm an educator. I mean, that, that, that's a big part of, of, of my job. And it never occurred to me that that might be part of, of, of what I'm doing, right? But, but it's like, no, thou art also in the family business, you see. So here we are, right? You know, if you don't remember anything about what I've said thus far, remember this. The biggest call of all when you're thinking about vocation is the call of God on your life. Because, you know, if, if you're at this theme at CCO where you took every square inch, right, talking about God being sovereign over everything, you know, that includes our lives. We live in this individualistic society with the curated self, you know, the self that you manufacture and present to people so that people can envy how magnificent your life is, that curated self. The fact is that if you are a Christian, you are under God and belong to God. If you are under God and belong to God, the God who made you, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, then the pursuit of your life under him is to heed his call on the entirety of your life. And then as a subset of that, there is what are you going to be doing with whatever kind of job you have, whatever career you have, or whatever careers you have. You know, because we're in an era now where people have more zigzaggy types of ways of making their way through their careers. When I was growing up, it was like, okay, you're going to work somewhere for 20 years and maybe 10 years after that, and then, you know, maybe retire. Well, now it's like, okay, I was here for two years, and I was here for five years, and I was here for another five years. A straight vertical type of ascent is extremely rare in terms of how people work out their, 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 their job life. 
Um, so even when you're doing that, I, mean, I think it's really important to have this discernment about, Lord, I belong to you. Where are you? You know, where are we going? Where, where, where do you want to take me as I'm going step by step? And by the way, as I'm going step by step in a very kind of privileged world. And here's what I mean by privilege. Most people in world history have had nowhere near the amount of job choice that people have now. That is a luxury that we have to, to talk about what do you want to do? Well, well, you know, 200 years ago, it's like, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to do what your dad does. You're going to do what the family does. What are you going to do? Oh, the farm. That's what you're doing. The guild. That's what you're doing. So the, the, the amount of breadth of opportunity that there is, is really a, a tremendous luxury and gift to have. And see it as a gift rather than as something that's oppressive. Because sometimes you might go, there's so many things that interest me, so many things I want to do. Believe me, I understand. I'm like an incessantly curious person. It's like squirrel, squirrel, squirrel for everything for me, right? I just can't, every, everything makes my eyes big. So, uh, you know, it's, it's like, can I just like kind of understand it all at once? Well, you can't, right? And you have to make choices. It's an opportunity rather than something that's oppression to have choices. And so be aware of, of, of that. And then, you know, bringing yourself to God in a kind of in his life of holistic discipleship where, you know, you're, you know, everything's under him, including you, and then seeking him to guide you as you take your steps in your story. You know, it's interesting to ask yourselves, you know, when you think about your if you're in college now or when you were in college, think about, okay, what, how am I thinking about what this trajectory is? What's informing the way that I think about this trajectory? Is it about how I sit and think for a while and look around and then I come up with things and then it's up for God to make those things happen? Or am I out of my life belonging to God? Am I seeking him? And as I seek him, I'm asking him to help me to be aware of and be sensitive to the trajectories that fit with who he's made me to be. And please understand, this is not something to get anxious about when, you know, I don't want to miss it, that kind of thing. That's not the point. The point is just being willing to be in a discernment process with God. You've got to make choices. So make choices, Right. And, and understand the God who's merciful and gracious that, you know, God can handle the choices you make, right? So you, you go, oh, that seemed to be like a left turn or a right turn. What it, it, You know, there was a detour, et cetera. Sometimes that's the way the, the, the way the path goes for some people. And for some people, it seems to go by the numbers, right? Just exhale, <laughs> you know, make your choices and just stay in a mindset of discernment. I think that, that that's important. And when you're doing that, you are pursuing, you know, a, a life of vocation because it's a life under the call of God. Now, you know, most uh, uh, of you are, are students, I think. So it's also important to note this. When I was in school, back in, and, and it's not that anybody told me this. I'm just like dating myself. So back when I was in school, thinking about, okay, so here's like this K to 12 thing, and then there's going to be, 
you know, undergrad and maybe grad school. Now, I didn't expect to be like in grad school for the entire decade of the 90s when I was thinking this. So, so what happened was I thought, okay, so when you get out of school, ta-da, learning complete. And now I'll just do. Because now I've onboarded all this learning and I'm good. Wrong. 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 Actually, I'll never forget someone telling me, they go, you know, what you do when you go to grad school is that you learn to learn. Right. And and it's not that we don't take on things. We don't take on board things. We have things that we know, things that we master. It's just that it's here's a way of thinking about it. Depending upon where you live, you know, go to the library or when the libraries open, you know, post pandemic, go to the library sometime and just walk through the stacks of an area that you, that interests you. And here's what you're going to discover. You're going to discover, you're like, there's like all these books and they all seem so interesting. How in the world can I read any of this stuff? I mean, you'll begin to feel oppressed. Let me just warn you. But you'll be, you'll be intrigued and oppressed all at once because there's so much of it. You're like, how can I read all this? Well, you probably can't. But part of what it is showing you, though, is that obviously in the moment you can't, you know, upload all the knowledge from those books in your head. But what it's also telling you, though, is that, hey, there's more there for you to learn. There's more conversations for you to participate in. There's more topics for you to discover. There's just there's just a whole wide world out there for you to keep learning about. You know, one thing I've I, that's been very interesting to me has been learning how uh, if someone becomes um, the CEO of a company, um, if you'd asked me thirty years ago, I would have said, "Oh, they're CEO. Wow." They, they got the job because of what they already know, and they're going to just do the job based on what they already know. And actually, that's not really the way, the way it works. Whoever becomes a CEO, unless it's a person that's come through th- that company, when you get to that company, you know one of the things that the CEO has to do? They have to learn the company. That's part of the job, right, is learning the company, not you show up and you've got all these goods and you just apply this because no, you have to learn the company you're a part of. In other words, you've got to keep on taking more and more on board. And the point is, of course, this is not just for professors and CEOs. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. And I think this is also important. And maybe I'm saying this more to myself than anyone else, but the point is this. Learning is a tremendous opportunity that we have. And being able to have a sense of wonder, perhaps childlike wonder about the opportunity to learn so many different things is a great thing to maintain. Because there's so much to learn about so many things. None of us can learn all of that, but there are lots of things that draw us and that, you know, Will, will require time of us. And it's okay it requires time of us. It's, it's time to do the learning over there. Then do the learning somewhere else. 
you know, and do a little bit of learning about X and Y and Z and A and B and C. I mean, th- this is part of what we can do with our lives. Graduating is really graduating into more learning rather than graduating out of, you know, saying school's out, folks, and school no more. That would be such a tragedy if that's the case. Because then you're basically saying, there's nothing else for me to learn. (laughs) In which case, if you're not married, don't get married. (laughs) Because at least there, you're going to be learning a lot. I've married for 25 years. We have a marvelous wedding. I've had marvelous marriage. I mean, so it's not that my marriage is bad. It's just that I know that even we married 25 years, there's all kinds of things to keep learning. It's just the way that it goes. And actually, it's a great opportunity, a great experience to be the learner. That doesn't mean you'll never have mastery over certain things. But even when you have mastery over something, it means you have a certain level of having a handle on it. But it also means you're really aware of how big the ocean is in that particular area. Because the ocean's big in all these things. And nobody can consume the entire ocean in all those things. But you can kind of get a sense of what that ocean is like, you know? And so make your choices, but don't cease to have wonder. Don't cease to be a learner. I think that's really important. And also don't cease to to, uh, fail to recognize. Let's put it this way. Yeah, don't fail to recognize that you also have the opportunity to be a teacher without being a professional. Okay, you know, yes, I get paid to teach theology for a living. That's, that's, part, that's part of my job, right? You know, it's office with all these books, etc. But every one of us has something to pass on. Every one of us has insights that we've gained from the, the, the things in, that we've learned about or, or, or insights that come from what we are learning. There are things that we can share with others. And it's a blessing to be able to share with others. And, and that sharing with others can happen just over a cup of coffee, right? Or across the veil these days, you know, since like everything is like Zoom and Teams and Google Meet, et cetera. But there, there's the opportunity for sharing, you know, the rest of our lives. It's, it's a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous blessing to be able to be you know, to able to share out of what's happened because of the pursuit of the things that give you this sense of wonder and imagination and curiosity. I think that I think that's you know a way for all of us to think about the fact that you know education is really part of the entirety of our vocation. We're never to stop learning. We're never to stop sharing. Now, this is important also, and then I'll land the plane that we can talk. Um, one of the things that's great about any Jubilee conference that you go to is that you get the whole drama, creation, fall, redemption, and depending on who's, who's telling you, restoration, renewal, there's different ways that people want to say it, okay? So <laughs> that's the eschatology part, <laughs> the end of the story, <laughs> shalom returns. So here's, here's an important thing to note. So it's, it's really important to take on that entire narrative. And, and if it's in that, and that's new to you, you know, dive into learning more and more about that. Now, what's also important to understand about that whole drama is remembering where we live. We are living between the third act and the fourth act. 
And the thing about the third act, right, is that the third act is where salvation has come, but the second act has not been completely vanquished, right? The hangover from the second act is still present while we're experiencing the third act. And my point about that is this. You don't have to have an idealistic way about how you're going about your life as the person that is being perpetually educated and being a perpetual educator. As a person whose life is under the Lord's Christ. What I mean is this. When you're aware of the fact that the fullness is still to come, when everything is perfect, then you can exhale and take the pressure off yourself to have to be perfect about your learning and perfect about your teaching. Right? You're in a process of transformation, a process of sanctification. And there are ways where you know gains are being made. You know, with, with the re- realization of the kingdom of God in your life and in the way you go about your life. But there's always kind of this undertow of where the kingdom, you know, where the not yet, you know, it's like now, the, not, the now part of the kingdom and the not yet part of the kingdom. Well, the not yet part has the hangover from Act Two, from the fall. That the not yet, sometimes, you know, it reminds you that everything is not yet as it will be. And my only point about that, about that is just to say, You don't have to put yourself under the pressure to present things as if everything's an act four when it comes to your knowledge and your teaching and your learning, right? I mean, it's it's a process where, you know, you may get some things right, you may get some things wrong, right? But that's that's part of the great opportunity of learning is to discover, oh, I was wrong about that, or I missed that part, or I'm missing that, you know, or, or, or I, I, I misapplied that part or I conveyed that part wrong. That's okay. Right. Just step back, start over. That's part of the great opportunity of being in this process of being a learner and being an educator. You know, um, it's a great temptation being in my 22nd year of teaching at Wheaton college to just do kind of plug and play with my teaching in my classes to just show up and go, all right, I'm going to press the button and out it just spills. Right. And to say, they'll just get the same thing, no matter who's in there, et cetera. But I, I try to keep learning. And I, and I try to keep understanding how, how do I teach these students in this class at this time? And how do I keep refining this and how do I keep learning more and how do I maybe leave things out that I used to talk about all the time and add something else etc I keep learning about how to do this well trying how to steward this well and um and and I I feel I feel more at ease doing that than I would have I think 10 years ago right because it's okay for me to admit that I'm still in a learning process that I've got a lot of experience but I'm an experienced learner who's learning along with his students, right? And, and yes, uh, I may do more of the conveying because that's my job at a place like Wheaton College, but they can also convey things to me as well. And I can learn things from them. And, and as long as, as, as I'm recognizing that, you know, my, my job isn't to pretend I'm the Messiah, to pretend that everything has arrived with me. Then it, ta- you know, it takes the pressure off in terms of feeling like I have to act like I've learned it all, and I'm teaching you how I've learned it all. No, I've, I've learned a lot. And I'm teaching you how I've learned a lot, but I'm still learning, right? And so 
the remembering where we are in the narrative just helps us to take the pressure off ourselves to somehow present things as if we've presented everything completely perfectly. It's okay to not be perfect, right? And we have, and just it's the opportunity you have to keep learning and keep sharing. It's a great opportunity for us. So education as a vocation is really about our lives, our lives under God, a life of holistic discipleship where he wants us to have a life of discernment as we pursue our trajectory with him.